Octanon Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means deeds, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Relius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Sarah McMahon is an American mixed martial artist who currently competes in the bantamweight division of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, the UFC, and is currently ranked number nine in that division. McMahon is a former Olympic wrestler and the first American woman in history to receive a silver medal at the Olympics which she won in the 2004 Summer Olympics in Athens, Greece. That's the birthplace of wrestling. She's also a world silver medalist and two-time bronze medalist. Last but not least, she's also a brown belt under the legendary Marcelo Garcia. There's so much just in that intro, Sarah. Thank you so much for being here. And I don't think a lot of people understand to compete in Greece, the birthplace of wrestling, the first martial art ever. Wrestling is the first martial art in the world, in my opinion. I think boxing is part of it, but wrestling is the most martial component of it. How did it feel to be on that hollow ground and compete at that level? Oh, there was like a ton of reverence when we knew where it was going to be. And we would have been happy to go to any Olympics. We were the first ones at it. So naturally, we would have been grateful. But to know that it was in Greece, it was just extremely special to all the wrestlers. That's where everything kind of began. And as an athlete, I know that you don't get a lot of time to go spin sightseeing, but did you get to see some good stuff while you were there? So we did because you arrived to acclimate to the area. Like we arrived like three weeks early and then we didn't stay in the village. We only stayed in the village after the competition because one of my teammates, thankfully, she got motion sickness. So we had to drive an hour to our practice site, an hour and back. That was twice a day. It's four hours in a car with someone who has motion sickness that would have destroyed her training in the biggest time of her life. So all of us stayed together and we stayed in like a very tightly guarded hotel. We could even just walk to our practice room, but that allowed us to actually like go out and see Greece, like the city. And it allowed us a little bit more freedom instead of going in and out of the village. But thankfully too, that allowed us to sleep because apparently we were like towards the end of the games after every country finished competing in their sport, they celebrate. There's all this stress and pressure and whatever. So there was like tons of parties. In the Olympic village. (laughs) While you're trying to sleep. Like, so it would have been terrible for all of us. So thankfully she had the most legitimate reason to say, hey, we can't stay at the Olympic village. And we're all like, yeah, that's cool with us. We just went there afterwards. So That's smart. That's a great tactical decision on y'all's part. So a lot of people, once they've been to the Olympics and they've competed at this huge ultra high level, especially as martial artists, as performance athletes, as athletes, they don't know how to let that go. But you were able to transition into this incredible capacity as a fighter with the UFC. What led to that? And I know some people may think, oh, that's a natural transition. In some ways it is, but there are a lot of wrestlers that once they get punched in the face and they realize that somebody's going to try to knee them when they do a single on them, it changes the perspective a lot. Yeah, I think that some people too, like are kind of more geared towards that and some people are not. So it's not even like, cause we get hit in the head a lot in wrestling. We have a 
pretty high pain tolerance, but sometimes you like have a knack for stuff or a desire to do it. And sometimes you don't. And honestly, after I was in wrestling, when I retired, I got pregnant with my daughter and I didn't plan on doing anything. I was like, okay, like I wrestled and I love wrestling. So I was done with that. And I realized halfway through my pregnancy. So like four months in, I'm like, I still want to compete. I still have that like deep drive to compete. And I was like, I don't want to wrestle anymore. So at first I tried a little bit of jitsu because it's like wrestling second cousin. You know, it's very similar, but very different. So I want to do that. And then somebody like introduced me to MMA and I was like, in the striking part. And I always had like a deep love and respect for striking. And it's kind of funny too, because in the striking, I was really bad. I was terrible. And that sucked me in because I'm really bad at wrestling too. When I first started, I was like, oh man. You were bad at wrestling? You didn't just walk onto the mat and just completely single and double everybody down? No, 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 no. I had some natural components. Like in my family, like all of us are like pretty strong naturally. And I can pick up technique quick, but no, like the first two years in wrestling, like it was such a tremendous struggle. Sometimes I come home like in tears, like I, I wanted to be better. I wanted so bad to be better, but it just takes time. The same thing on striking though. I wasn't in tears. I was a little older athlete, but I also knew I was like, man, this takes like years of muscle memory for me to do this, hit it correctly, hit it when it's supposed to be done, the timing of everything and it's its own full sport. So but I also thought I was like, oh, I'm just going to do this until I'm like, maybe max like 35. I thought I'd only do it for like five years. <laughs> I, was like, oh. I was like, I'm not really good at gauging myself because I plan on not stopping wrestling after high school. Wow. I think you're doing something right. I mean, over 20 years, the highest levels of competition, come on. Yeah. And I, it's funny too, because like all of my plans, people are like, oh, what do you want to do after fighting and things like that? And I'm like, these are my loosely laid plans because I have no idea because who knows what will like, I'll catch like one little itch and like just run with it. And I'm like, I think I'm going to try to be the best in the world at this. So who knows? That's the beautiful thing about competing at the level that you have for as long as you have. You have this certain template, this work ethic, again, the stick-to-itiveness how many times do we see an athlete walk into a gym or a coon or whatever it is, and they have a lot of natural attributes, like you said, strength, but the minute they go with a good wrestler or they go against a good striker or a good jujitsu person, and they realize I can't just muscle this person over and their ego gets dented a little bit, they just walk away because now they're like, oh, I don't want to do it anyway. Well, that was fine. I knew I could still learn a couple of things, but to have that ability to, like you said, have your ass handed to you over and over. And then, like you said, that mental wrestling match that you have afterwards where you're like, I did everything right. I did everything the way I was supposed to. And I, I actually gave everything that I could. And I still had nothing compared to this person. So we either have to let that ego go down and say, okay, am I going to go back in there? Or do I allow that to keep me from trying to go back? And that was from that drive. Yeah, I could definitely say, and my coaches would probably agree that I'm like one of the most stubborn people alive. I mean, definitely like top two. I don't know if I'm the most ever. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be the best of the world. I'm probably in the final. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys ever dated me. <laughs> I'm a very stubborn person. So when I want to do something and I want to do it well, and then I don't, that commits me more than if I was one of those people, I can actually understand if I came in and I naturally did something really good right away. If I was one of those athletes that just naturally came in. I think I would get bored with things a lot. I think that I would be one of those kids that like coaches look at and they're like, that person has so much talent and 
why aren't they here? I, I, we want them on the team. And they're like, eh, I think I'm going to go skateboard because I think that like we as humans, they're what I see as surmountable challenge. We don't want something that's like too crazy. Like we could never, ever do it, but we want something that is within range, within possibility, but you have to strive for it. And that hits me. Yeah. We don't respect as humans. We don't respect what we don't pay for and either money, blood, sweat, tears, emotion. And that's what we have to have. And that's what makes us elevate to that level. And I'm also naturally selective when it comes to what I'm competitive at. So I'm not one of those people that is like, you put me anywhere. If I'm not doing good, then I'm going to just be competitive with everything. I'm not. If I'm playing basketball, I just couldn't care less about basketball. So I could be terrible at that. I'm just like, okay, five, four. And I'm just, I'm not five, six. I'm just joking. But still, like, I'm just like, yeah, I don't really, I don't like basketball. So kind of stands to reason that I'd be terrible at it. And that's kind of the power of being an expert in a few things as opposed to trying to be this generalist, this jack of all trades and master of none. People that I know that are successful or peak performers in any capacity, like you said, by definition, they just say no to pretty much everything. But the stuff they say yes to, they can go all in and they're like, hell yeah. And that's when they really go for it. Yeah. I saw like a thing before. It was like a little video and it really describes, this is kind of my personality too. I'm either like, no, absolutely not. Or like, fuck yes. And that's how I am in everything. If I'm going to go on a hike, we're hiking. It's awesome. Amazing. We have to climb scale rocks and stuff. Or I'm like, yeah, or I'm like, no way. I don't want to do that. Or dating, same way. I'm like a vault. You're either in or you're out. <laughs> first date, okay, are we committed here? Um, can we get to dinner first? Nope, I need to know. No, no, don't no. waste my time. No, I mean, like in my heart, I'm like, you're either in, I like you, we're cool, or it's a hard no. Like if there's no, <laughs> I don't believe I'm not lukewarm. I'm not giving mixed signals. There's no middle ground with me. Well, at least that way, I know where I stand with you after the conversation. You'd be like, oh, that guy, I'm never going on that show again. (laughs) (laughs) And Emily Kwok is the one that introduced us. I've had the honor of talking to her for a while. It's just incredible to see how you were talking about these loose laid plans that you have after competing, whenever that is. But what I have found in my life, at least, is that the more that we try to get to the highest level of ourselves, our highest level of our expression, whatever the medium is, we naturally along the way meet those kind of high caliber, high moral fiber, incredible people. They sort of circulate around one another. Now you have this circle of these amazing people and you're like, wow, how did I get here? Well, again, over the years of trying to do the right thing, of trying to have quality over quantity, all this kind of stuff, that's what allows us to find those things. So I think that whenever you choose to stop competing, unless you go into another professional realm, which I, I would not you. be surprised. <laughs> exactly. So I'm already like, oh man, when I'm done with the fighting, because I have to let some injuries heal up whenever I truly retire. And I was like, I'm going to throw the key on. This is a whole new world of stuff. And so I, I do like combative sports. I do like what it brings out of me. And I was talking to Chad and I was like, yeah, I was like, I want to be a black belt world champ. And he's like, Sarah, you have to like dedicate your entire life to being a black belt world champ. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I understand how that goes. <laughs> you know, and he's like, but he's like, you know, that's going to be really difficult. And I was like, but what harm is there in trying? Because if you would ask me, oh, would you still be competing in, at this level in the UFC, the most premier promotion in the world for mixed martial arts at 41, 30 year old me would have said, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's possible. But I'm just like, hey, as long as my body allows me to do it, as long as like my drive and desire still want to do it, I'm just going to keep doing it and we'll see what happens. And that attitude of like, 
no, we're going to keep going until I decide to stop has led me to everything that I've achieved. In my experience, unless somebody's telling me what I'm doing is crazy or asking me why I'm doing that, I'm not really pushing where I could be. Or again, it's that fear, that adversity, that drive that we sort of our compass. It's like, man, that would be amazing. I know it would be a lot of work, but that, as you said, that would make it even more amazing once I get there. So maybe if you're looking at statistics and be like, oh, well, statistically speaking, maybe not everybody could do it. I know tons of athletes who have like career ending injuries or the work that they do, they can't balance it or they just lose the drive to do it. They don't want to get out there and do that anymore. And I'm like, that. it's understandable, but they're outliers. And I don't know if I'm an outlier or not, but I can see, I can test it out. And if it turns out that I go and blow something out, then like, mm, I guess I should have probably stuck last year whenever my body was. <laughs> but I mean, for me, I'm like, I'm super optimistic in general. And I'm like, eh, I can just cry. Later. Yeah, I'll walk it off. I'll be all right. I'll be like in the bathroom for like 10 minutes. <laughs> and then I'm okay. All right. I'm good. Okay. How are we going to come back? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And we have to have that time. We have to be able to kind of accept it. And it's okay to have a pity party, so to speak, for a little while. But like you said, it's like, okay, I got this long. Okay. Once the buzzer goes off, all right, take a deep breath. Let's figure it out. So at this high level of competition that you've had and that you still are competing at, there's a lot of people that don't understand the mentality that goes into that. They don't understand the gravity of the stakes and how serious you take that training. Can you just tell us about the mentality of what an Olympic level competitor, a world UFC competitor, what that is and what separates that between like you're in the top 1%, let's be honest, compared to the other 99%, what do you have mentally that they don't? So. I think that I've always had a certain amount of, I see where I am on point A and I see point B where I want to be. And the path has always been like super clear to me. And then I've always had like a natural amount of self-discipline. So not constantly. I mean, like I'm going to eat a brownie once in a while. I'm going to, you know, but for the most part, I will go to bed when I need to go to bed. I naturally, I don't know if I'm like a human garbage disposal. I don't know, but I can eat healthy food. I don't care that much about food. So I eat more for nourishment. I eat for what my body needs. Yeah, it's fuel. Yeah. Yeah. And so even though I got COVID and I, my lost my sense of smell, and I was like, eh, I'm just going to eat even healthier. All that stuff that is really good for you that I can't stand, I'm going to eat that now because I can't taste it anyways. Whereas like, you know, my husband was like, I would be devastated if I lost my sense. You don't even know if you're going to get it back. And I was like, mm, that's all right. I mean, I got other senses. I would hate to lose my sight. So I was entirely unbothered by this, which is a benefit. I'm a food connoisseur. I want rich stuff. I want tasty stuff. It's hard for me to say no. I can pass on good tasting stuff like pretty easy. And then also, like, I think one of the better things is that for the most part, as much as a human can without being a total outcast, like, I don't care that much what people think. So being a girl wrestler, whenever it was not popular to be a girl wrestler, being muscular before CrossFit, when it was not popular to be muscular, doing MMA when it was still a joke or a sideshow or treated like foxy boxing here to entertain guys, you know, like, so like doing that, but just not caring that some people really didn't like it or whatever. Even people would say like in interviews, like one guy host was called out because he was like, yeah, you know, this guy, he called out the other host and he's like, he doesn't like to watch women's fighting. And I was like, okay, I think that he shouldn't watch it then. And they were kind of shocked. And I was like, well, here's the thing. Like, I don't like golf and I don't prefer to watch golf. 
But you know, the people who want to do golf, they should still be allowed to do golf. And the people who want to watch it, they should still have programming for people who do want to watch it. But just because I don't really care for it doesn't mean that somebody should stop what they're doing and what they love to do. Because there's plenty of other people who do. And he's like, wow, he's like, I think I just became a fan. <laughs> I was like, I might watch your fights. <laughs> I wasn't like this, oh, you need to respect me. You know, I'm like, you don't really get anywhere like shoving anything down someone's throat. But like, I just really wanted to like do what I like to do. And if people didn't like it, I'm like, oh, okay, well, you shouldn't do that then. You should do something else. That's how, that's how kind of the attitude that I've had. Well, and that's what we have to do. Like you said, this is your path. It's nobody else's. And when we're on our path, sometimes we feel lost on it. And that's part of the path. But just because somebody else can't see exactly where you're going, again, like you said, it may not be well lit and perfectly bricked up for us, but we have this direction. And it's like, this is something that interests me. This is an area that I could be excellent in, or I would like to be more excellent in. Like you said, the two years of wrestling or getting the fundamentals of boxing or all striking. So I heard this thing, this is actually when I was at the Olympics or before the Olympics. And my coach told me the story and I might be slaughtering this. I'm sorry, because this is just what I remember about. It's a little tale. And it's like, these frogs are trying to hop up and climb like the Empire State Building. And it started out with a huge group of frogs and they're all hopping up. And the people at the bottom, they're like, you can't do it. That's too tall. You're not going to make it. And like slowly, like halfway, a lot of frogs started dropping off. They are hearing these voices. They're tired. It looks like it's forever away. It's like that. And then the people are sitting down there like, don't do it. It's too high. You're going to fall. You'll get hurt. You're never going to make it, blah, blah, blah. And three quarters of the way up, only like 10% are even still left. And then towards the end, there's only one lone frog that makes it to the top of the building. And he was deaf. So it's like, man, imagine like how far you can go. if You're just not listening. Maybe they're right that you're not good right then. Because like earlier in my career, I didn't seamlessly transition. My striking was pretty terrible. My jiu-jitsu, like it needed a lot more. But that's the great thing is like I respect both of those sports and I gave them their due diligence. And I've been working tirelessly to say, these are hard sports. These take time. I might have some natural stuff that I bring from wrestling, but I need to like really do these sports for themselves and become as great as I possibly can. Am I going to be a world champion boxer? Probably not, you know, because that requires a singular focus. But can I be very good for what mixed martial arts requires and still like take care of the wrestling part and the jiu-jitsu part and all the things? Because you have to really do a ton of sports. I'm like, yeah, I can do that. Or I'm going to try like that. That's what's so interesting too, is because you had such a high standard of excellence in one arena, you knew what it took. So you keep telling me how terrible you were at striking or how jujitsu felt awkward at first. But again, in your mind, compared to the excellence that you knew that you were capable of, you were like, okay, I'm just not there yet. Right now, I feel like I suck, but you know that you will get there. And I think that's the power of not only your due diligence and to have that humility, like you said, even the cardio is different. Like cardio for wrestling feels different than you can go six minutes and then all of a sudden we work the paths and it's like in three minutes, you're like, oh my God, I'm dying. And then you do jujitsu and you have somebody big that's just putting their knee in your belly and you're like, oh my God, I can't. It's a whole other skill set cardiovascular wise too. Yeah. Boxing and jujitsu could not be more different. And then wrestling is, it's six minutes long, but it's six minutes of the most intense pace that you've ever gone in your entire life where people by four minutes are breaking. That's it. And that's where that tenacity comes from. Again, when you know in your mind that you can try to just sprint for the six minutes and that person doesn't have it, or when you can feel their kind of will almost break, 
that's when you can actually push, even when you're tired, because you're both tired. Oh, absolutely. That's where your will has to carry over whenever your skill of your body wants to abandon you. Yes. Now, I think there is legitimate, like when you start to get tired, when you hit your VO2 max, you're going to have a little dip in skill, but it doesn't have to be as drastic as your mind makes it. When your mind recognizes you're tired, you need to have certain self-talk in place can counteract that as much as humanly possible. So like if I start to feel tired, I'm like, tighten up your position and technique. Immediately, if I'm in wrestling, my stance is the most solid stance because it's the best place to shoot from. It's the best place to defend from. So like the most basic and fundamental things, my hand fighting is efficient. I'm not doing anything that doesn't get me somewhere. Everything is for a purpose. Like if I'm using that energy, it's because there's an 80% chance that this is going to be very effective. I'm not just like getting in those scrambles and those dog fights and stuff like that. And same thing with my striking and jiu-jitsu. It's like tighten up your positioning and use the most efficient tools that you have that like makes them work very hard and makes you not work very hard. And also in striking, if I get tired, I'll start eating their body up. Now we're both tired. Breathe very well because your oxygen controlled by your dog. Man. So now we tired. Now, now we both tired. Yeah. What are we doing now? Yeah. It's like, oh. Yeah, but I knew it was going to happen. Yeah. So we'll see how we <laughs> <laughs> I saw we were slowing down. You haven't seen it yet, but we're getting there. And then like you said, that's a great time to, to change position, change levels and, and get the takedown. Also, you can read on people's face. Like you better have a good game face. You better not show that you're tired because that gives the other person a little bit more energy. It gives me energy. I'm like, Oh, you're in it now. I got you okay. now. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to your battleship. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing too, that I think that so many people, like you said, when they talk about critics and they allow that to get in their mind, like you were saying, that mental narrative that we have, if they are yelling, you're tired or you're getting slow or you don't have a tight form, if we allow that to get in there, we have to almost have that kind of bulletproof psyche to let that go away. Even how many times do we take constructive criticism from people that are not being really constructive in their criticism where they haven't created anything in their lives that they want? It's easy to be falsely humble when you're not actually trying to achieve anything great with your life, when you're just kind of mediocre. And that's why when they see a person like you, that you grow up around them and now you're doing these things that are amazing, it's a reflection to them that, man, Sarah did it. I mean, why am I not doing it? Well, you know, she's special or she's unique. It's like, no, she's not. We don't have to be first. We just have to be last. We have to be the last one willing to continue when everybody else, like you said, that last frog that's willing to keep going up when everybody else is afraid of how high it is. And that's what allows, like you said, the attrition rate is tremendous. And if you can just keep going when everybody else is afraid to keep going, sometimes that alone is what allows you to be victorious. So my favorite thing is when I've heard come to practices when I was really pregnant. I'm telling you, like I rolled up until six and a half months pregnant. What? Yeah, but only with, there was like a couple of really high level black belts that they could control me so well that even if I was going to hurt myself, they could like just gently guide me. <laughs> the post and keep you in yeah, line. Like, yeah. oh, but I would like come into practice and I'm like, Somebody complained. I'm like, oh yeah, your back hurts. Oh yeah, I'm that's terrible. And they're like, oh crap. But I'd also say too, I'm like, oh yeah, where were you at? Why didn't you come to practice? Because obviously you have no freaking excuse. Like whatever your excuse is, being extremely pregnant <laughs> was not one of them. And I'm still here. Sometimes it is good to like say mentally, I need this day. I've been pushing it really hard. And if I step back, like the best way to step forward is to take a rest day. 
because you can really grind yourself down and, and you can do that mentally too, where you're run out of ideas and you're kind of like, you're not refreshed. And so you're not hitting it with like really good energy and your stuff come, comes out flat. That will happen with your muscles. That will happen if you're driving and like that. So like sometimes I'm saying like taking a day completely away, taking even more or scheduling breaks in there can help keep your desire and drive strong. But some people are just doing it because they don't feel like that. And they, if you listen to that voice enough, it becomes like your stronger voice to like, I don't want to do this or I don't want to be here. And so you either have to assess like, do I still want to do this? Because if I don't want to be here frequently enough, maybe this isn't what I want to do anymore. Then you have to honor that because I was talking to my daughter. She was thinking about quitting gymnastics. She's been doing it for a long time. She thought I was going to be mad at her. That she was going to be a quitter. I was like, what are you supposed to do? Like you start gymnastics when you're seven and now you got to do it the rest of your life or you're a quitter. I'm like, no, everybody retires at some point. Like if something's not for you, then that's okay. Because there are plenty of great sports in the world. Like I do great sports. Wrestling is great. Mixed martial arts is great. Like jujitsu is great. So there's other things you want to do, but it's really fun too. It's just taking that pressure off of her and saying, no, I mean, if you wanted to stop, she rediscovered how much she loved it. She like went in and she's choosing to do it completely on her own. She was just struggling. She just came back and was struggling a little bit. It was cool to watch her go through that process because everybody, if you do an unbelievably difficult sport and you don't occasionally think about like, man, why am I doing this? Or should I retire or whatever? Like, I don't think you're pushing it hard enough. <laughs> if you don't at some point think about like, this is too much, like you're not pushing the limit. So she just was. And so it's fun to watch that process. And it's neat when we're on the outside because we can obviously see it better. When we're on the outside of the cage, it's like, keep your hands up. You're like, I thought that I did. And you look at the film, you're like, oh, dropping my hand before I threw the hook. No wonder I couldn't land that. It's like, yeah, you're telegraphing it all day. But the other thing too that I think is powerful is I'll coach people, high-level executives, people that have these huge companies. And like you said, they'll be like, how would I push harder? Or they'll say, am I burning out? And it's like, I come over here and say, are we doing it for the right reason? Don't ask if you can push harder because like you said, if you're doing it for the right reason, if you're doing it because you just love this pursuit, then you will absolutely find that next level. And in anything that we do, especially at a high level, 60% of the time, the workouts, they're all going to be pretty much the same. 20% of the time, you're going to be like in just the ultra zone and you're just destroying everything and it seems easy. And then there's going to be that 20% of the time when, like you said, ah, you know, this is difficult, but that is part of it. And as you said, if we don't remain present to that, it's very easy. That's when we get hurt or that's when we hurt a teammate or that's when we start to slip on the technique, we get sloppy. And now we would have gotten more from, as you say, stepping back than trying to just drive forward. And then we were talking about social media earlier. If you listen to social media, nobody sleeps. Everybody works 30 hours a day. To those people, I say, bullshit. Second of all, I say, you're not doing it right. Because if you are having to work that long to get whatever you want to get done, it ain't happening. That's not the right thing. No, no. And I think too, like social media to me is more like just a continuation of a high school popularity contest. <laughs> it really is. Like, so I don't really care. Like what I view it as, I do social media totally wrong. Nobody should take advice from me. This is almost like my own personal little thing. Cause I'm just like, I will occasionally post something that is giving you a little snippet of my life. That's it. So that's why I don't have a high follower. I don't identify. I don't identify my brand. I don't put out specific content. I don't identify my target group and my niche and all that stuff. I'm like, here's some striking. Here's me on mitts. Oh, and here's my kid. 
people don't want to see my kid. Well, then you should unfollow me because I like that. Some people come later and they're like, you have like a really authentic page. I'm like, yeah, it actually is a little snippet of my life. And I'm just allowing people a little behind the scenes peek at what I do all the time. And I honestly would get rid of it if I could, because I just don't like, it's very fake. I don't think it's very healthy, but it's very good to have this to monetize what I'm doing as well. Not just with the UFC, but I won't be sad whenever <laughs> I'll I get to be done with it. Just because I see things on there too. Like I've unfollowed or muted a lot of things and I'm just like, it's right. It's, it's just kind of bullshit. You're like, no, you're not. No. Oh, you have that striking thing and you look amazing. Ah, I think you sped the video up. You know what I'm saying? Like, so you're not even being, oh, that was your 400th take or, you know, like women use and guys use filters and, you know, there's different programs and it's like, that isn't even what you look like. Like, it's kind of strange, but I just like, I'll have fun with it or I'll just kind of be like, oh, this is a little bit of my daily life. And that's what it is. You can't take it too seriously. And again, it's a necessary evil because there are people that want to follow you, that love what you do. They respect you as a fighter and as an athlete. Of course, we want to make it easy for them to know more about us. But at the same time, like you said, as we were saying before we hit record, it's like, man, our schedules are so packed. Like we don't have the luxury of being on social all the time. And I know I could hire like Gary V's video crew to come around and follow me around. But again, even now, like they would just film me talking to you on Zoom. Of course, we'll release the video and all that stuff, but it's like, come on. But they would make it look like the most exciting, amazing. <laughs> oh God, this was just like, even you laughing right then, they catch you laughing. And it was just like, it's just like those choreographed moments. But it's like, I don't know. That's what I just don't see. Because like, when you laugh the video on your face, like or it's just different. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're not laughing in the moment. You're not experiencing that laugh. You're aware of yourself with that laugh. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like you said, it's a performance or there's a camera on me. So I better laugh or do something animated. I've got the kind of face, I got that stoic face. So like, if I don't have some sort of animation on my face, I look like I'm going to kill you. So I have to <laughs> do something where it's... All right, serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I got to go now. He wasn't looking. I too have resting bitch face. <laughs> <laughs> I have it too. And so the UFC and then getting into jujitsu, which to people that don't understand wrestling, like you said, components of jujitsu and vice versa, but it's a very different arena. It's a very different sport. And then jujitsu with the gi is a whole other animal because there's so much to it. And Marcelo Garcia, come on, brown belt under that. For those of you that don't know, I'm going to say two things. One, a single leg is a single leg takedown. It's wrestling. There are double legs as well. And then a high crotch is a takedown. It's not some weird hashtag. You call it a high C, whatever you want to call it. But these are takedowns. And then Marcelo Garcia is pound for pound, the greatest grappler alive. People can make all kinds of different arguments for people. But yes, once I met him, once I, I watched him, I watched his competitions. I watched how he rolls in the room and the way he carries himself and the standards that he has for him is in like everyday life. And I'm like, this guy does embody that. He embodies martial arts and he's just phenomenal. And the way his brain processes it and the way his body moves, like all of it, like it's just very seamless. And it took years and years of doing that. And he has a quote too, that says, I don't know if I'm like the best person to ever do jiu-jitsu, but I know that nobody loves it more than me. And I was like, no, it's true. You can see it. You can see how much jujitsu is like, it's like breathing to him. His love is reflected in his performances and how he coaches and what it means to him. And that makes a huge difference to me. And that's why I was like, 
I never really even did ghee. And then I met him and I was like, I want to be belted under him because I had so much unbelievable respect for him and admiration. And so we joke, it's called it like a coach crush. Like there's athlete crushes and there's coach crushes. The athlete crush is when a coach sees an athlete that are like, oh my God, I could make this person a world champion. If I, if they listened, they have what it takes. I could put them on the path. The sky is the limit for this person. So that's when a coach becomes like very non-sexually enamored with an athlete. And you have a coach crush where it's like everything they say is gold. Everything that they say makes sense to you. It works out. It's like epiphanies all the time. You're like, oh my God, there's, how did I not see that? You know, like, and you believe that coach could take you to the best level in the world. And I moved, I moved to California. I don't get to see Marcelo as much, but I have this MG in action. So I like still watch his techniques emulate the different styles that he has. I, I love the way that he moves and I watch his rolling and like I see how his body, what solutions he finds to different positions and like that. And so it's the best that I can do, but he's my coach crush. I believe that if I had trained under him all the time, I would be able to do UFC and be a black belt world champion. I have no doubt. I have no doubt in my mind. And I want to cross-reference something. So how many times do you think you've done the single leg takedown? Just from practice, like just give me a number. It would have to be in the millions. Millions, right. So you're to that place where you don't even think about now. It's like breathing. You just put the shoulder to their hip and you're there, right? It's like my favorite shot. So not only have I, anytime you drill all of your moves, but when they give you extra time, you drill the one that you really are putting all your eggs in that basket. And so that and like doing it live. I've shot it more times than any shot that I've ever taken. So like that would be like, maybe it's other ones that could be like the hundreds of thousands, but that one's got to be in the millions since I was 14 years old. So I was listening to an interview. Emily Kwok has been mentored by Josh Waitskin for years. Josh is a black belt under Marcelo Garcia. So there was an interview with Tim Ferriss where they were talking about how Marcelo will, even within the position, he has side control. And then he allows the opponent to move. And within that, it's like a snapshot of like all these hundreds of micro positions between their backs flat. Okay. Now they're starting to shrimp. Now they're starting to arch. Now they're trying to roll. And even within those, he knows what's going on. So I imagine that with the single leg, you're very much in that place where it's like, okay, I put my arm out. Now this is like a bad ankle pick attempt or as opposed to actually committing towards it and through it. But that could only come from all those repetitions. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that Everybody tries something for a little bit. They want to be good at it. And then if they aren't at your level in like two weeks, all of a sudden they're like, well, I'm not going to do it anymore. But it's that continuation. It's that work ethic. It's that protocol that just makes you continue to move forward to get to those places. Am I on track or am I just on a crazy tangent here? No, no, no. I would even take it a step further. I can't speak for Marcelo, but I can definitely speak for myself is that after you've done something for so long and you've done all the different ways that someone can defend and you've counteracted to that, for me personally, some things just happen without my actual conscious decision. I no longer am deciding when people talk about like having no mind or you're in the zone, things like that. But like, I would probably say that Marcelo's body responds to your movement because he's been in that position so many times. And for him, he just naturally does it. He's not thinking and making a choice in that, that decision tree. It's subconscious now. When it's conscious thought, for you to recognize a position, even as quick as you can feel something and then make a decision, you know, that position's gotten worse by the time that, that split second for you to decide. 
But when it happens without just completely naturally, it looks like that was choreographed. It looks like they're moving the way that you wanted them to move only because you responded so fast that it looks like that was the finish that you were going to be going with the whole time. So that's what it feels like for me. And those are like my beautiful moments of like, oh. <laughs> like it, you've got that flow going and it kill ourselves in drills forever to chase those moments. <laughs> like, yeah. With the golf analogy, right? They say you hit like a hundred shots and then you get one that's good and that keeps you addicted to the next hundred so that you can get maybe two that are decent. I think it's variable interval of like, maybe it's not even interval of like addiction to, to the coin slot. Yeah. Slot machine. Exactly. We're like, Pulling the slot machine, and we're like failing all these things. Like, oh, I like smelling. Yay! <laughs> we're like, oh, I got that single leg. You're gonna destroy my body. My knees are shot. My back is killing me. But I'm gonna do 20 more single legs. That's it. I'm gonna get there. Or like you said, when you happen to see it on film, and you're like, oh, 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 let's go back. Oh, that was amazing. Yeah. Even like the Marcelo idea that it's like a flow roll, but he's doing it at the highest level possible against an opponent who's clearly in his division, so to speak. So Bruce Lee said that analogy. He says, I don't hit. It hits all by itself. It's this idea, like you said, where there's Mushin, there's no mind. You just react. We occupy the space. Yeah. Yeah, Your brain will slow you down. If you try to inject your brain into it, I'm not saying you can't make some kind of conscious decisions, obviously. And especially there's like, you'll find little natural breaks where you have to make adjustments. But for the most part, not thinking for athletics and for competition, you're better off. Even if sometimes you're doing the wrong thing, if you keep moving, you will like wind yourself out of the bad position. Like there's a big thing in wrestling too, of talking about just keep moving. Cause most times we get in the biggest trouble when we pause, give that person the chance to build momentum, counter you. Yeah. And again, people that are trying to create their own business or write a book or even walk into a martial arts school for the first time. It's easy for us to be stuck in that paralysis, but action cures all. It cures anxiety. It cures doubt. It cures so many things. Just our bodies were designed to move. And so if you can take that movement, get the oxygen going in your mind, start getting some belief in your system, it's amazing what we can do. And every military person I've ever talked to, even my military experience, it was like you're doing a 25 mile ruck march with a hundred pounds on your back and it's negative 10 degrees outside in the snow. What other choice do you have? Am I just going to sit here and die? Or am I going to continue to move forward? Yeah, it's going to be difficult. And you can say embrace the sucker, whatever you want. But it's about just being willing to take that step forward, even when you don't want to anymore. And just taking one more step. And it's one more breath, one more moment, one more rep, one more single, even when you don't feel like it. Yeah. Humans are way more capable of things than they ever realized, too. When I was competing, I had a different coach come in. He was the, he was the Stanford coach at the time. He came with us on a trip. He kind of told me a little analogy that has like stuck in my head. Like this is decades later. And he was like, if I gave someone a jump rope and I told them like, okay, I want you to take this jump rope and I want you to jump as many times as you possibly can. Like go as many times as you possibly can. And so like, say I went and I did like a humongous amount. I stopped and I'm like, I can't jump rope anymore. And he's like, I'll pay you a hundred dollars. If you can do five more, if you can do five more jump ropes. I'll pay you a hundred dollars. And I'm like, and so you do the five because you're like, wow. He's like, okay, I'll pay you $5,000 if you can do two more. No matter how exhausted you are, you're like $5,000. Okay. So you'll do two more jump ropes, even when you're about, your legs are about to fall off. And they'll say, I'll give you a million dollars if you can just jump one more time, just one more time. 
I mean, a million dollars. Hell yeah, you're anyone's going to do it. I don't care what it was. And then after that, they could put a gun to your head, jump one more time to save your own life. You absolutely could. So it's like we stop and we think we're done, but with the right incentive, we a hundred percent could. We could do anything. Well, that's a little far, not anything, but much more than we thought we were capable of. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. I ran David Goggins four by four by 48 challenge last year and I'm doing it next month and I did it for charity. So like you said, running four miles every four hours for 48 hours straight when it's sleeting and cold outside and you've been running for 26 hours and you don't want to get up. It's like, it's not even about me. This is about trying to stop human trafficking and child sex slavery. I can't get out of a warm bed that's secure and safe. Shut up, get your shoes on and go run. Lots of times we make it much worse than we think it is. And then we allow it to grade that momentum in our minds. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Adversity doesn't get better with age. It usually gets worse. So we have to lean into it. We have to nip it in the bud immediately if we want to be able to actually get to that next level. You're right. It has to be something that's worth it to you. Because sometimes you can't find the motivation because it's not what you really want to do. Like you're, you're like, oh, well, I'm doing this to maintain something or keep some security or whatever. That's not striving. You know, that's like maintaining your status quo is not a good incentive to be able to do something like people who only go on diets because they want to like look good in the mirror. There's usually fail. That's your motivation. But people who are like, man, I have cardiac disease in my family. I have high cholesterol in my family. And if I don't take care of my body, I'm going to die earlier. Like that's just reality. Other people can eat this stuff and don't have repercussions, but I do. Those people are going to stay fit. You have some other motivation that is like bigger than just, I want to look good because I don't need it. That only lasts for so much. It's just not enough for the will to turn down all of the good things to gear towards the things that you may not like as much and, and stay in shape. Working out and getting in shape, oh, I hate getting in shape. I'll be the first one that I'm a professional athlete. I try to stay in shape as much as I possibly can because getting into shape is terrible. It is, especially getting into like high level conditioning shape. I try to maintain a really high base if I can. It makes sense. Yeah. Hell week's always going to be hell week or fight week's always going to be weight because it's hard enough already. Like you said, why make it harder? Why put it off in the emergency break when you should be putting on the gas? That makes all the sense in the world. And again, it comes back to that question of, can you push harder? Well, are you doing it for the right reasons? And that's where it comes down. Listen, I'm going to be respectful of your time and thank you so much. I just want to ask you one last question. You've competed at these high levels in three different parts, let's say, between wrestling, the UFC, and actually jujitsu stuff, competing in Brazilian jujitsu at this level. Has your mentality towards competition changed and how has it changed through the years? Because you have incredible longevity. How has it changed throughout the years from that Olympic level to where you're at now in the UFC and then moving forward with more of the jujitsu? I think that the only thing that has been able to change part of my decision and part of it naturally is that the same intensity, the same competitiveness, that has been the same since day one. That going out there and my drive and desire and heart, you have to bring it every single time to every single match. But what I did when I was younger that probably could have worked against me or wasn't as smart is I didn't down regulate in between things. So now what I'm smarter about is in between matches at a tournament, I will actively cool myself down. I will get my heart rate low. Even if I have to lay completely down, my rest in between is higher level. 
And so like, that's the only thing I could change because if you're trying your best, but I can get everything down. And so like when I don't have a fight scheduled, right after a fight, I take all the levels down and I start working a lot more technically, a lot more efficiently. And I almost schedule in stuff that like to undo rehab and lifting and stuff like that, to undo all the damage I did during my camp and fight. <laughs> so that's something I do differently. Instead of just jumping right back in, trying to keep a forward momentum, like that's a way to like crash. Like I intentionally recover better. Yeah, we can only sharpen the knife so long before it starts to go blunt on us. And now all of a sudden we have these end rows and we can't recover. Yeah, yeah. Chronic injuries, acute injuries, like they all start catching up. And I saw this thing before too. It says, if you don't schedule system maintenance, your machine will schedule it for you. And it's like, that's our body too. That's our body too. If you don't schedule in rest and natural breaks and you know stepping back away from it, to get a clearer mind coming back you can see yourself more clearly you can problem solve better you're fresher to do it then yeah your body will do it and mind will do it for you you'll have like a mental breakdown <laughs> like well even like doing a single leg right when you're at that place of complete relaxation it makes you faster it makes you get there you're not fighting yourself you're not trying to create this weird gravity it's like no there it is and you just go you spring forward beautiful I cannot thank you enough, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything that you're doing. You are an incredible athlete. I know that you don't care about social media very much, but you are a great inspiration, a role model for athletes and everyone all over the world. So thank you for your time. Where can we find out more about you? Tell us how to get a hold of you on Instagram and tell us about your fight that's coming up. So on Instagram, it's at Sarah McMahon. Pretty simple. And then I'm on Facebook. I push the same kind of content on there too. And then... Don't look on Twitter because I never post. <laughs> I just exist on Twitter. My fight is March 26th. It is in Columbus, Ohio. And also, if people are in the Sacramento area, so my gym is Precision Academy and drop-ins are welcome. So anybody can come and train. We have a really, really great atmosphere. We have a lot of really great people who are like down to earth and happy and competitive and push the level and take care of each other. So like, Anybody who wants to come to Precision, I will just be a face among the crowd and you'll meet a lot of great people. And Precision is in where again? It's in Citrus Heights. It's like Northern Sacramento. It's all in like Sacramento County. And what she's saying, this means it's a welcoming environment. This means that they're not going to go in there and just smash you your first day. And there's a lot of people that have trepidation about walking into a school, especially when they see a person of your level. And let's be real, the people that are there as well are going to be at a very high level too. But this is what it is. You're trying to cultivate that environment, trying to cultivate that place that allows what happened. If we had the right place, we had this tide that rises all boats. And that's what people need, especially if they're trying to get better. With really high level people, if they roll with you and they feel like you're not the level that they are, they're not going to take advantage of that. They're going to get their hard rules in with the people who are like neck and neck with them, the people who can push them, like the rules with you they're going to put you in a position. You're going to have to figure out your way out. They're going to kind of push you mentally. And then after the role in our gym, like you see it all the time, that minute break in between, instead of finding partners, you see them like, oh, when I had your leg, yeah, you need to do, you know, like they're like, they're helping each other. And so it's, it happens naturally and it's a really awesome environment. Well, that's all based on you. You're the one that created it. <laughs> no, 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 that's my husband. <laughs> it really is. I'm a super competitive person. He created this like jujitsu is for everybody. He is like one of the most accepting, welcoming, generous dudes like I've ever met. And he's a fierce athlete too. And he'll come out there and he'll roll hard. But man, 
he wants everybody to enjoy jiu-jitsu as much as he enjoys jiu-jitsu. And like you end up, you do. And that's saying a lot because there's a lot of schools that will claim that. And then when you walk in, you slap hands and all of a sudden it's like people ripping each other's heads off, going light. It's like, come on, guys, really? That's what I'm saying too. It's like, I keep that at bay too. So if people come in and they're in there just trying to do that, they either kind of, I talk to them, you know, like, hey, she's like 30 pounds lighter than you. And, you know, like maybe, you know, but we also have like some mat enforcers who can like, but they'll put them in check, but not in a jerk way, in a technical way. And that lets them know their level without like, they're not going to go out there and hurt you, but they're going to say like, Hey man, like you're still here and look what I can do without hurting you one bit, without using any energy. I just floated on you. I passed your guard. I circled around. I had got this submission. I didn't rip it but I could have had it. I transitioned to another submission. So they kind of like run a little clinic on you. And that lets you know that, man, hey, like smashing everything is not going to be, you don't have to do that in jiu-jitsu. So like it teaches about teaching, but it does it in a way that's not encouraging that. Like, oh, if you're higher level, you smash more. No, you gently smash their ego. <laughs> that's it. We kill the ego and we feed the warrior. I love it. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.